Anybody feeling the, the pressures of Christmas already? Go ahead, you can raise your hand, be honest. Okay, a few honest people out there. All right, very good. I saw a couple men pointing at their wives. I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to get a little frazzled over the Christmas time, uh, sometimes to get a little uh, forgetful. Did you hear about the, the elderly guy who was uh, kind of feeling his age and didn't really want to go out and do all the shopping and battle all that and really didn't feel like he could handle the internet. So what he decided to do was he decided to send checks to all of his family, his kids, his grandkids, and, and uh, he mailed out his cards early and he wrote in each card, buy your own Christmas present. And so he sent those off and, and he enjoyed the usual flurry of, of Christmas activities and stuff with family and friends and the holidays. And, and he noticed kind of after the season that he didn't receive very many holiday cards in return. It wasn't quite normal. And uh, he, he decided to go into his study and to write a couple of his relatives just to say, hey, did I offend you? Did something go wrong? What's the deal? And so he goes in his study and he's shuffling around papers. And to his horror, he finds the stack of gift checks that he forgot to include in the letters he mailed out. Now, can you imagine receiving a card from Grandpa that says, Buy your own Christmas present, right? <laughs> Didn't quite go exactly the way he wanted to. Kind of made for an awkward Christmas. Um, we want to do our part as a church to make sure you don't forget what's important about Christmas. And with everything going on in, in this time of year with the different things, with kids' activities, we want to make sure some of the fundamentals of the Christmas story are ingrained and that you've got those and that you can even share those with people or with your children. And we're going to use Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 as, as a backdrop, as a guide, as we talk about over the next couple of weeks about Jesus' identity and his position and his mission here on earth. And to kind of set it up, and you know, it wouldn't be uh, Advent, Christmas season, that type of thing, without reading uh, a little bit of the birth narrative. And so I want to read, to, to start this morning, from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. should be on the, the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. A virgin will be with child and will, be, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's that last phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, is where we're going to really land these next few weeks, and it's something to, to keep in mind. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Hopefully you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't this week, can I encourage you to bring it back with you uh, uh, next week and, and to do that? Um, you can grab a blue Bible somewhere close to you, and you'll find uh, Colossians on page 833. And as, as you turn there, I want to spend just a couple moments talking about how people see Jesus and what people say about Jesus. There, there are people, especially this time of year, whenever you ask the question, well, who is Jesus? You get a variety of responses. One of those responses is, and you can follow along in your bulletin, baby Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? Well, he's a baby Jesus. He's a cute little baby Jesus, cute like a, like a little puppy, right? He's not powerful. He's not demanding. He's not 
uh, intimidating. It's a manageable type of Jesus. Is the type of Jesus people see. In fact, there's a scene in a movie where Ricky Bobby, who, you know, he says, sweet baby Jesus in gold-plated diapers, right? That's how a lot of people want to see Jesus, this sweet little innocent baby that, well, he's manageable that way, right? You kind of make him take a nap or give him a bottle and send him on his, you know, just kind of Jesus as a baby. Some other people see Jesus as a fictitious Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a figment of someone's imagination or this thing that that these well-intentioned people invented as, as a way just to help people do better, live better, feel better about themselves. Jesus is just the government's way of trying to keep people in line and to keep the peace. Uh, but Jesus is, is very well documented in even outside of biblical literature and history books and, and other things. A lot of people put Jesus in the same category as SC, a good legend, as long as you don't take it too far or you know, make too big a deal out of it and people will grow out of it eventually. But that's about all the farther they want to take Jesus. Then there are some people that see Jesus as this mystical Jesus. And it's kind of an interesting way to look at Jesus, that he came to earth, he existed, and and he lived here, but he he wasn't flesh, right? He was just spirit. He was just kind of mystical. And and the reasoning behind this is because that anything that was physical, the, the thought is that if it's physical or if it's of the flesh, it's evil. It's evil if it's, if it's of the flesh. And so Jesus couldn't be flesh because he wasn't evil. So he had to be just a, a mystical figure or, or a godly being. Uh, a lot of people hold the view that Jesus was a historical Jesus. Just, he was just historical. Certainly a good guy. He, he did a lot of good things, had a lot of good things to say. He was even a prophet of God, but he wasn't divine. He just wasn't divine. And, and the miracles were just probably fabrications or stories just to, you know, to kind of to spur that thing along. And it's the idea of Jesus that's portrayed uh, in the movie The Da Vinci Code, if you remember when that came out uh, several years ago. They suggested that the 4th century church uh, took a boat and decided to claim that Jesus was divine, and that's how they were going to do that. And that's really just a, a bad interpretation of what actually took place there. Um, and so that's kind of the way people see Jesus as this this historical Jesus. Paul wrote in the book of Colossians, um, and as he was writing that that book, there were some false teachings that were going on uh, in the church and in that area, and Paul wanted to correct that false teaching. A part of that false teaching was that everything physical was evil. It was talked about there in the myth mythical, mystical Jesus, and, and, and so Jesus couldn't have been, you know, both human and divine because of that, and he had to, he had to uh, set them straight. He had to correct them on their false teaching and those types of things. There was, there was also another teaching that has surfaced around that time that proclaimed that Jesus was just one of many ways that people could connect to God, that God had lots of intermediaries, that there were lots of different ways that God was using to connect himself back to the people. Jesus was just one of them. And so Paul wanted to make sure that everyone who was reading this letter, that they clearly understood who Jesus really was and who he truly is. And, and I think it's an opportune time for us as we think about Jesus, as we think about Christmas over the next few weeks, that, that we clear up who Jesus is, just so we are all clear uh, as to who we believe him to be. And we're going to do that over the next few weeks uh, this week we're talking about the Born Identity, and it's kind of a rough play off the Born series. Anybody seen the Born series? Okay, now you're going to hear the Born series. So, however that works for you. But look at Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen. It says this: 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul says that the very nature and the very character of God has been perfectly revealed through Jesus Christ. This word image that we see here in the text is this Greek word icon, all right? And it's very similar to what we think of as icon. However, it doesn't mean a copy. It doesn't mean something that was just a a representation. It means a perfect image. Paul is not suggesting that Jesus is just a copy of God, that he's certainly not suggesting that Jesus is a less than perfect copy of God. Um, Have you ever taken and made a copy on the copier and then made a copy of the copy and then a copy of the copy? What happens to that, especially in the older copiers? The quality goes down, right? And what Paul is trying to get us to see is that that's not the case. The quality did not go down with Jesus. Did you ever see the movie Multiplicity with Michael Keaton? Any of you ever see that movie? Uh, the quick, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, or maybe just don't want to admit that you did raise your hand, um, it's a movie, uh, Michael Keaton's character finds himself under this time crunch, and so in order to, to help him get everything done, he decides to make copies of himself. And so he makes copies of himself and sends them off to do all these errands, and things are going pretty well for a while until one of the copies decides that he's got too much to do, and so he makes a copy of himself. So this third-generation man thing or whatever, isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, and things start to go south in a hurry. It didn't work very well. Paul trying to say here is that Jesus is not a bad copy. He's not a copy at all. He is the image, the perfect image of God. Paul says if you want to see God, then look at Jesus. In all eternity, in all of nature, the very nature of God, Jesus is the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it like this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God. He's the icon, the image of God, and in him you find the fullness of God. At Christmas, we celebrate the truth that God stepped out of heaven and he stepped into this world to be a real person, the real person of Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God, or as Paul put it, he is the image of the invisible God. There's another phrase there in Colossians that I'd like to look at, verse 19, that says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, all his fullness in the person of Jesus Christ, all of God's qualities and activities, all of his his word and his wisdom and his glory are perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. In other words, everything that God is Jesus is. They are the same. Jesus was completely God. In fact, later on in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul puts it this way. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is God in every way. He is God in the flesh. And that is the Christmas story. And that's what this is really all about. Jesus is representing for us in every way God. And that's why he came to this earth in the flesh, so that we could see that. And this Jesus being God thing is pretty important. It's pretty significant to to what we believe about our theology and about how the whole Christmas story works. Uh, The Bible makes this fact clear, along with some compelling arguments, when we start examining the facts. And so I want to look at some of those scriptural arguments this morning as as we look at this. The first scriptural argument is that Jesus unmistakably claimed to be God. Jesus 
often made the claim that he was God. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be God. No other uh, major religious founder ever claimed to be God. They claimed to be prophets of God, but Jesus alone claimed, I and the Father are one. Jesus made that claim. His followers knew that he claimed to be God, right? The people who spent the most time with him knew that Jesus claimed to be God. And here's the kicker. They believed him, and they considered him to be God. Here's what I know for sure. If I were to say, I am God, my family, my friends, and probably all of you would go, (laughs) no. Right? And yet, when people who knew Jesus best They knew that it was true. They accepted that it was true. They knew that he claimed to be God. They believed it to be true. In fact, one time Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave him a variety of answers. And then he said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Thomas in John 20, verse 28 sees Jesus after the resurrection and cries, my Lord and my God. Make no mistake about it. His friends, the people who knew him best, the people that walked with him all the time, knew of his claims of deity. And they believed him. And they accepted that. And and maybe what's more interesting to me than that is the fact that even his enemies knew that he claimed to be God. In fact, in John 10, verse 33, it says, we are not stoning you for any of these. And it's the Pharisees talking about Jesus. Jesus had just performed some miracles. And they're saying, hey, we're going to stone you. And Jesus is saying, why are you stoning me for this? And they're saying, well, not for any of these, not for the miracles, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claimed to be God. They knew that he claimed to be God as well. Now, either Jesus was speaking the truth about himself or Jesus was just crazy. I mean, there's kind of no other options there because either he was a good prophet and a good man, and he taught us how to do these things. And if he wasn't God, then he claimed to be God. That makes him crazy. You can't have it both ways. You can't say he was just a good, God, good guy, but he wasn't God. Good prophets don't go around telling people that they're God. Not if they're good prophets. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He was the exact representation of God, and and that's who he claimed to be. The second argument that I'd like to consider is that Jesus precisely fulfilled ancient prophecies. Uh, Jesus alone, there were over 600 major prophecies and over 250 minor prophecies concerning his coming, his life, and, and all of those things were written over 400 years before Jesus even showed up here on earth. Prophecies like he would be born of a virgin, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem, presented with gifts. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. They would cast lots for his garments, that he would be crucified, that his side would be pierced, that he would be resurrected from the dead. All of those things were written well in advance of Jesus showing up, well in advance of these things actually happening. And Jesus came and he fulfilled those prophecies. Third one, Jesus lived a morally perfect life. Jesus lived perfectly. He, he had a, lived a godly life. No one could find fault in him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. The people that knew him, they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And in fact, neither could his enemies. If you remember back to the trial, Pilate uh, at his trial in John chapter 8, verse 38 says, I find no basis for a charge against him. And even though Pilate allowed the crucifixion to take place anyway, Pilate could find no fault in Jesus. They couldn't do it. No one else in all history could have that said about them, that they were perfect. 
And yet it was said about Jesus. Number four, Jesus performed powerful miracles. Consider just these four events. Walking on water. That's pretty impressive. Raising the dead. Healing people. Calming the storm. Some of the amazing, amazing things surrounding this argument is that Jesus' enemies, they didn't try to deny that Jesus performed these miracles. Probably because a lot of them saw them happen with their own eyes. Instead, it made them angry, and it made them want to kill Jesus. And so they looked for opportunities on how they could trap Jesus and how they could have him killed. Jesus was performing miracles. People were following him. The word spread about him. People came from all over the region to see Jesus. And that didn't please the religious leaders of the day. In fact, in one exchange, we see that Jesus has forgiven the sins of a paralytic man. And the religious leaders are ticked off, claiming, hey, you've got no right, no ability, no claim to be able to say that the sins are forgiven. And we see in what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus performed miracles. And his enemies knew it. His followers knew it. They didn't deny it. They just couldn't explain it. Scriptural argument number five. Jesus returned from the dead. He came back to life. The, the stone that sealed the grave was rolled away, and Jesus physically came up out of the tomb. Even his followers and his friends weren't expecting that. They had to be convinced. They had to be persuaded. Thomas said, well, if I don't see him, I, I'm not going to believe it. And so Jesus showed himself to him. In fact, we, we know of several different appearances that Jesus made. One time to a crowd of over 500 eyewitnesses. Uh, the, the accounts that are, are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were written and distributed while the eyewitnesses were still around at that point. People could have refuted what they had written. They could have refuted what, what had been recorded, but they didn't. They didn't come out and say, hey, that's not what happened. I was there. Let's get the other side of the story. They didn't. In fact, a lot of them were killed for their convictions. They were killed for their beliefs. Something changed in this group of, of frightened, cowardly disciples, and they became men of courage, men of conviction. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, And Jesus Christ, our Lord, was shown to be the Son of God when he powerfully raised him from the dead by means of the Holy Spirit. No other religious leader, no one else has ever claimed to have conquered death. But Jesus died and he rose again. And, and there's good evidence, not only in the Bible, but in history, to support that claim. And because Jesus conquered death, it validates the claims he made about himself. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. You see, in our culture today, we're really good at, at shifting the true focus of Christmas. Instead of focusing on, in on who Jesus really is, we, we focus in on the infancy of Jesus. Christmas is really about the deity of Jesus. Our culture will sing about the birth of a baby, but it will reject the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. Our culture will, will sing about the nativity and gather around it and think it's really cute, but reject Jesus' authority. Our culture will adore the infant, but will not bow down to the king. Our culture will embrace the activities and the events of Christmas, 
the manger, the shepherds, the wise men, the children's programming, the different things, but I'm not going to believe that God was truly here. Because to believe that God was truly here means some things may have to change. Christmas is not primarily about Jesus' birth. And yeah, it's the time we celebrate it, but it's about so much more than that. It's about God incarnate. It's about God putting on flesh and coming and be, being a part of who we are. And, and because of that, I have to ask the question, what difference does that make? Why is that significant in our life? And, and you may believe all of this stuff that I've talked about, but, but what difference does it make? I want, to, want you to consider two things. Number one, because of Jesus, knowing and understanding God is possible. Simply because of Jesus Christ, you and I can get to know God. He is not unapproachable. He is God with us. He revealed himself to us. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 says, In him and through faith in him, and we're talking about Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It's interesting to me that you don't have to look very far to see that people are looking for God. They're looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him in all sorts of things. In fact, have you seen this? Have you seen where Jesus was in a pancake? <laughs> Pulled it off my grill and there was Jesus. Or how about this one? How about Jesus on your Walmart receipt? Multiple accounts of Jesus being in the clouds. Still trying to get there on that one. And then there's this one. I don't know if you've seen this. I saw it for the first time last week. It's a Jesus toaster. You put in a little thing, and you toast your toast, and you put Jesus on your toast. I don't know that I'm cool with that, really. People are looking for Jesus in various places, in different ways. There are lots of people that are honestly, truly trying to, to experience God, to see him, to, to find out who he is. And, and Christmas is really all about the fact that if you want to know what God is like, then get to know Jesus. You get to know the person of Jesus Christ, and you'll find out who God is. You go through and you read any of the four Gospels, and in those pages, you'll see who Jesus is, and you can get to know him intimately, and in doing so, you can get to know God as well. If you want to discover and experience the life-changing love of Christ in your life, then I want to encourage you to do this. Would you read the Gospel of John? You can read any of them, but I want to encourage you to read the Gospel of John. And as you read through the Gospel of John, pray this simple prayer. God, I want to know you. And then you read. Don't read the whole thing in one setting. Read, read a little bit. God, I want to know you. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God to reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ, as you read through those pages. And watch the scriptures come alive. If you'll read it, asking God to show you himself. Jesus is the exact representation of Almighty God. And if you want to know the heart of God, then you need to know the heart of Jesus. If you want to know how to love God, then learn about the love of Jesus. If you want to know the will of God, then experience the will of Jesus in the scriptures. Because of Jesus, knowing and understanding God is possible. And number two, because of Jesus, God is with you. You're not alone. You may feel, you may believe that you're alone, but you are not alone. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Think about that. Jesus is not called, or God is not called just a God who hears our prayers. He's not just a God who created us, not just a God watching from a distance. Thank you, Bette Midler. But he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. 
walking with us. He's walking on the same streets that, that we walked. He's breathing our air. He's facing the same temptations. He is there with us every step of the way. When you feel all alone, God is with us. When you're scared and you don't know how you're going to make it out, God is with us. When you feel overwhelmed and you're just confident that there's no way that this is going to work out, God is with us. When you feel tempted beyond what you can handle, God is with us. And when you've blown it again, and whenever you feel like you've made a mess of things again, would you remember that God is with us? On June 5th, 1978, a seven-year-old boy by the name of Martin Turgeon slipped off a wharf and fell into the Prairie River in Canada. And the reports are that at least two dozen adults saw him struggle for a few minutes before he sank and drowned. No one jumped in the river to try to save him. They simply watched him drown. And read that and go, what? When they asked the people why they did nothing, the, investiga the investigation turned up that just upstream, a plant was known to dump raw sewage right into the river. And as a result, the water was dirty. It was dangerous to your health, and it was gross. And as a result, no one jumped in the river to save that seven-year-old boy. Can I tell you what I've experienced in talking to people sometimes? A lot of times they feel like God is like one of those onlookers who's standing on the wharf of the Prairie River, they feel like God is looking down saying, look, I'm not going to dive into that mess. I'm not going to get all dirty and gross and all that stuff. And so you clean up your act first. You get yourself out. You get yourself cleaned up. And then I'll embrace you. And then I'll love you. But the story of, of Christmas and through the passage of Scripture that we read, we meet a God who, who was willing to plunge into the mess of our human life to plunge into the dirtiness and in our sin and in our sorrow and to go down in and say, you know what? I'm coming in after you because you mean that much to me. You don't have to clean yourself out, up. I'll do that for you. And he came down in and he became God with us. The virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we are so thankful that you are with us. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the reminder through your word that you're with us, that no matter what's going on in our life, God, that you are there. That Father, you are going to jump down in the mess of our life and to rescue us if we'll simply call out to you because you desire for us to do that for you. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that we can truly discover and experience you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we are truly, eternally grateful for what you've done. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to us. Thank you that we can have a, a time and a season of the year like Christmas that we can be almost forced to remember that. And God, I pray that in the busyness and, and the hecticness of this season that we will not lose sight of the fact that this is all about you and it's all about the fact that you came to be with us. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you are with us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He who has the Son has life.
he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's our desire that you have life. It's our desire that you have a life that can begin right now and blends into all eternity because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's our desire that that you make a decision to follow him. But can I tell you, even more importantly than that, it's God's desire. It's God's desire that you experience those things, and that's why he sent Jesus. That's why he is Emmanuel, God with us, so that we could do that and have that opportunity. And if you've never accepted him, then we want to give you that opportunity. We want to invite you to do that. If you've wandered away from him and it's time to to get back on track with him, we offer this invitation to you. If you want someone just to pray with you, maybe to help you, to counsel with you, whatever the case may be, we invite you to respond this morning. Stand with me. Ian and the band are going to lead us. If you want to talk to someone this morning, you make your way over near the cross, and we'll meet you there.